don't know me. You just heard a little bit of an introduction from Pastor Lance, and one of the first things that uh, we ask each other when you meet someone new is you say, well, what do you do? Or tell me about your family. So you heard a little bit about what I do. I am a pastor, I love the church, I love Jesus, I love opening scripture, and I'm a mom, I'm a mom. I've been married to my husband, Jeff, for almost 17 years. I call Jeff my real life rocket scientist husband. Um, We can't say in our house it's not rocket science because we actually have a rocket scientist. He is an engineer for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And let me tell you, God has brought together two very opposite humans. Talk about the whole right brain and left brain. Um, When I walk into a house, I think, is it beautiful? Are the aesthetics pleasing? And he walks in, he says, where's the garage and where can I put my tools? Uh, So we just, you know, think very, very differently. Um, And sometimes I'll I'll walk up behind him in his computer, and I'll see just these algorithms that I'm thinking, is that a foreign language? What is it that you're doing? And recently he came downstairs after, after working. He works from home, and he says, I was just in a Zoom. Zoom meeting where I saw slides of the very first samples of Mars dust uh, that are coming through from the from the Mars rover. So really, really exciting things. And then my two boys, Caleb and Noah, they are 11 years old and Caleb, uh, Noah is 11 and Caleb is almost 13, right? Because when you're 12 and you're two months away from being 13, you don't say you're 12, you say I'm almost 13. I'm almost a teenager. Terrifying. Pray for us. Caleb is an avid baseball player, loves, loves, loves baseball, watches baseball, loves learning about baseball, loves learning the art of pitching and batting, and we're just trying to keep up with him and ride on his coattails. Uh, he, he loves mountain biking. And then my son, Noah, um, is, is a little Jeff 2.0. Uh, my husband's name is Jeff. He is going to be a rocket scientist someday, I'm sure of it. Uh, and by the way, earlier I was telling this story. My, my two boys and husband were watching the 9 a.m. service, and I just FaceTimed, and my youngest son, Noah, said, he said, why didn't you tell them that I'm a swimmer? <laughs> so I'm here to tell you he's also a swimmer. And then he said, and then also be sure that they know that I have a 3D printer. I said, you got it, buddy. So now you know. <laughs> He's a swimmer and uh, he has a 3D printer. But just to paint the picture for you as to, as to what a little scientist he is, uh, this, this last summer uh, he decided that he was going to build his very own hydroelectric dam. Uh, our house, we're nestled in the woods with the creek running up beside our house, and he said, I'm going to make our home more efficient and we are going to draw electricity with this hydroelectric dam. And I said, okay, great, what's a hydroelectric dam again? And so he started drawing diagrams and blueprints and all sorts of, of you know, arrows and how this was going to work. And we wanted to steward this for him and help him like, this is great, you're not playing Roblox or Minecraft, let's do this instead. And so he started building up a list of all the things that he needed. He got into Amazon and started putting stuff in the Amazon cart. And my husband and I, we opened up the Amazon cart and we're like, yeah, this is not gonna work. <laughs> $800 later. So we had to steward him in other directions, and since he has a 3D printer, we said, why don't you try to start maybe trying to figure out how to 3D print the parts? Uh, So that is just a little bit of a picture of my family, and I was so thrilled that my husband and boys were watching this morning, because I was just thinking, my boys are watching kids their age bear witness to the hope of the gospel, which is so important. Because for me, watching other kids declare their faith is what pricked my heart and drew me closer to Jesus. 
You see, I grew up in a family of um, what you call cultural Christians. In some circles, we call them priesters. We went to church on Christmas and Easter, uh, sometimes Mother's Day. Uh, but we were more culturally Christian. We, we, we had no language around what it meant to follow Jesus or have a relationship with Jesus. But when I was in high school, I was surrounded by students who were declaring their faith in the most beautiful ways that pricked my heart and drew me in. You see, I grew up in Bourbonnet, Illinois, uh, where Olivet Nazarene University is. And because I grew up in a, in a community where there was a large Christian university, uh, there were students there whose parents were professors or pastors or missionaries, and they were living out their faith in ways that I had never before experienced or seen. I would sit on a school bus with them, and I would overhear their conversations sharing prayer requests. Or they would say things like, well, I was, when I was talking to Jesus last night, or I think God is saying this to me, and I would think, how, how do they know what God is saying? And they had this joy that just seemed so palpable, and I wanted what they had. So eventually I made my way to a local Youth for Christ campus life outreach, and I heard the gospel preached, and I started hearing about Jesus, and that one of the youth leaders there encouraged me to start reading my Bible. So I went home and I grabbed my green leather Bible that my staunch German Lutheran grandmother had given me, never opened it in my life, I decided I'm going to start reading through because maybe if I read cover to cover, I'll, I'll learn about this Jesus that these other students are talking about. Maybe I'll, I'll learn how to hear from God just like they are hearing from God. And so I opened up my Bible every day when I got home from swim practice, ate my dinner, did my homework, and I would go straight up to my bedroom and I would just start reading. And I read Genesis and then Exodus, which with fresh eyes was exhilarating. It was so exciting reading this grand adventure unfold. Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy it started to get a little dry from there. Um, but we powered through and I made it to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and then I got into Luke. And as I was reading the Gospel of Luke, Jesus began to captivate my heart and my imagination. I began to fall in love with Jesus. That when I got to the scene of the cross and the resurrection, I had a mixture of gratitude and devastation because I could not understand why Jesus would have to die on the cross for my sins. I knew that to be true, but I had no understanding of any theology around the cross. I thought if God is God, can't God just forgive me without such an atrocious thing of someone that I was falling in love with? And at the same time, I was overcome. It was as though, even though I, I couldn't articulate what it was that God was doing for me, I knew that God was doing something for me and that God was extending grace and joy. And so I didn't know what to do, so I got down on my knees next to my bed because I thought this is the posture that we must take before God. And I, I put my palms up like this and I knew I needed to say something. So the only words that could come out of my mouth were, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. With tears streaming down my face and onto my Bible, it was that moment that the grace of God began to envelop me entirely. And I began to understand what other students meant when they said they knew Jesus and when they heard from God. And that next morning I woke up, I gotta tell you, it was as though I was seeing the world in color for the first time. The birds were singing a new melody 
The joy of the Lord was in my heart, and I had hope, abundant. And I think back to that moment, that pivotal moment in my life that in many ways has taken me on so many grand adventures, including to this one here today. I think back to that pivotal moment in my life, and I have so much gratitude for the students in my high school who publicly declared their faith to me, a cultural Christian who had no idea what it meant to follow Jesus or have a relationship with Jesus, but they lived it out and it pricked my heart. We can never underestimate the impact students can have when they bear witness to this very good God and what God is doing in the community around them and through them. And you see this idea of bearing witness to the joy of the Lord in such a way that others are drawn in is actually something that is central all throughout scripture. It is, it is a string, a thread that we see that ties the entire story of God together, that, that weaves it together, and that leads us to our grand purpose even here today, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But you see, today I get to pick up this sermon series, Empowered, which, which you've been sitting in for, for several weeks now with Pastor Lance, where together you've been looking at the early fledgling church in the book of Acts, and we've been watching their flourishing and their growth, and really up until now, there's just been grand adventures and excitement and flourishing. The Holy Spirit fell upon the people, and the apostles are, are running around, and they're saying, Jesus is not dead, he's alive, we have seen him. And the Holy Spirit is now upon us and we're seeing signs and wonders and generosity and hospitality. And what we see up until now in, in chapters one through four is we, we get this vision of a church that is declaring their faith publicly and bearing witness to a very good God that is drawing the attention of others, right? We see that they're drawing the attention of others, why? Because it tells us that the Lord is adding to their number daily because others are watching and looking and thinking, there's something about them that's different. I want to be part of that. Which brings us to our main idea for today. I want you to write this down. Write this down. God cares about the witness and the holiness of the church. God cares about the witness and the holiness of the church. Last week, Pastor Lance walked us through this radical hospitality of the early church when they bring proceeds to the apostles' feet so that the apostles could steward it for the flourishing and the good of the kingdom. And again, what we see is the radiance of the church, what happens when the church gets it right. And here's what I want us to think about this morning. Is that the world absolutely takes notice when the church gets it right. When I mean church gets it right, I mean it, when the church is bearing witness to the holiness of God, the radiance of God, the goodness of God, the world takes notice, hearts are pricked, and they want to be part of that. Here's the other thing. The world also takes notice when the church doesn't get it right. And other things happen. We gotta think about that. God cares about the holiness and the witness of the church. 
Okay, let's take a look at Acts chapter five. Today we're gonna cover verses one through 16, but we're gonna, we're gonna sit on uh, verses one through 11 for a little bit, and then we'll pick up 12 through 16 at the end here. So you wanna open up your Bibles to Acts chapter five, verses one through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Have you, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. We'll pause here. As troubling as this scene is, this is the very good word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This account, according to Luke in the book of Acts, is one of the more difficult passages to unpack and to make sense of. So I just want to give a special thanks to your pastor, Pastor Lance, for uh, throwing me this very kind softball on my first time ever meeting you. And so the good news is, any messes that I make, I won't be here next week to clean that up. Pastor Lance can um, deal with that. But this is, this is a difficult passage to unpack in the book of Acts. So here we have this scene, this married couple, uh, who at first glance seems like they're doing the same thing that happened in Acts chapter four. They sold a piece of land, and they bring the proceeds, and they lay it at the apostles' feet. Uh, it, to me, and, you know, at first glance, it sounds like tithing. We give a portion to the church. We give a percentage. We're being generous while also caring for our own needs. And so, we, so what we have is we have Ananias and Barnabas. Uh, they're both bringing their proceeds to the apostles' feet. They lay it there. Now, the beginning of the text tells us that Ananias and Sapphira agreed early on. They agreed that they were going to keep back some for themselves. They're going to take a little bit off the top or maybe a lot off the top. We don't know exactly how much, but they're going to keep back some for themselves. Now, there's a few things that the text doesn't tell us. We don't know what the agreement was coming up to this point. Uh, we don't know at first why this is problematic, and so here we have to look at some contextual clues and keys to make sense of this. So first of all, this word keep back, that they kept back some of the funds, um, actually in, in Greek literally means to misappropriate. 
Now, this Greek word is also used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a fancy way of saying this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay? Now, this word, when it is used in the Septuagint, it actually literally means to steal. So Luke is trying to tell us that, that something, something nefarious is, is going on here. We don't know what, but something is nefarious. And so we have to assume then, or we could assume then, that perhaps there was some sort of agreement going up to this, that maybe they had some sort of initiative where, where people gathered together and they said, okay, we will sell X and we will bring all of the proceeds to you. So perhaps Ananias and Sapphira entered into some sort of covenant or contract where they promised that they would sell the land and bring all of the proceeds to the apostles' feet as an act of generosity with the intentions of the the apostles being able to steward it for the good of the kingdom and the flourishing of the church. So what we have here then is we see Ananias and Sapphira conspiring together to misappropriate or steal the money because they committed probably to giving all of the proceeds. Which also flips a little bit what their intentions were to do this to begin with. It's likely that their intentions were not to use this money for the good of the kingdom. It's likely that this was a public display of just this gross kind of piety of look at us Let's bolster our ego. Let's appear to look holy before all the other people. And so what we have here is a case of lying, a case of blasphemy, uh, and a case of pride. They were doing something only so that they could fatten up their egos without the sacrificial generosity that, that God was calling the New Testament church to. And so right away, Peter, Peter is able to identify that there's something problematic here. He is, ap- he, is, he is definitely exercising some form of apostolic authority because as soon as Ananias walks into the room, he knows. He knows uh, that, that this is happening. And as soon as he cuts to the point, he cuts to the chase right away with both of them. And as soon as this happens, Ananias dies. And then we see the repeated theme was Sapphira. Now, I just imagine these young men who have just buried Ananias. They've taken this dead body out, and the text tells us that they're in great fear. They are in great fear. And so they they bury this dead body, and if I were one one of these people burying Ananias, I would have been then trying to run interference uh, for Sapphira and trying to like de-escalate the situation and would have said, Sapphira, like just, hey, listen, you're about to walk into something crazy here and I don't want you to die like Ananias. Uh, Or I would have been like talking to Peter saying, Peter, can we just like try to mitigate this and de-escalate the situation a little bit? But Peter doesn't hold back. Sapphira walks in and he says, is this all of the money from the land sale? And she blatantly lies. Yes, it is. And he says, your husband was just buried. And now these same men that buried your husband will carry you out also. And we have now this wild story and this troubling scene of two dead bodies. And now we're left wondering, what happened? Who did this? How did this happen? 
Well, there's a number of different conclusions that scholars make on this one, and ultimately, in the end here, I'm gonna let Pastor Lance guide you through which conclusion to land on. But there's a number of different conclusions that we can make. Number one, we can assume that the wrath of God was poured out. This is one conclusion we can make. That, that divine judgment was happening in real time right there with Ananias and Sapphira. We know scripture tells us, uh, tells us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And so right here in real time, Ananias and Sapphira are experiencing the wages of sin because they have turned their hearts away from God and divine wrath and judgment is displayed right then and there. A second conclusion that we can make is that the apostles, that Peter in this, at this point was, was exercising apostolic authority. Now, this would be consistent in many ways with what we've seen in the book of Acts. In John chapter three, when Peter and John, they come alongside of the, the lame beggar, and they say to him, they say, silver or gold, we do not have, but what we do have is in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. That's them exercising apostolic authority. And so it is possible in this situation that Peter is exercising apostolic authority before Ananias and Sapphira. A third conclusion that we can make, and that scholars sometimes make, is that it's potential that this was Satan. Um, The text tells us that Satan got a stronghold on their heart and that they had opened up themselves to the evil one, the evil one who in John John 10.10 tells us that the thief has come to destroy and kill. Um, In Hebrews 2.24, it tells us that he who holds the power of death And so it's possible that they had opened themselves up so much to the grips of Satan that in that moment that he who holds the keys or the power to death is working to destroy and divide this fledgling little church early on. Which, what a tactic for this very fragile community for Satan to come in to divide and destroy and to kill. So these are three possible conclusions that we can make, which again, I will lead it, leave this to your pastor to walk through that with you, but I do wanna make some very fine points that I do believe that God has for us this morning. It's clear, first of all, that within the church, there was and is no room for blasphemy. That within the church, that there was and is no room for propping oneself up to look holy for one's own ego. And it's also clear that the witness and the holiness of the church mattered then and it matters now. Imagine with so many onlookers if word had gotten out so soon and so early that these people that were claiming to be Christ followers were actually hypocrites because others were watching and paying close attention to what was happening in this church. A lot was at stake then. But here's the reality. A lot has always been at stake. Since the very beginning, our witness and holiness has always been part of God's master plan of redemption. And much is also still very much at stake now. And so I wanna give you this morning a more robust understanding of what I mean 
by holiness and witness and why that is absolutely central to our purpose here on earth as Christians and Christ followers today. So let's back up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we see in the very beginning is God's master plan of shalom. This idea of shalom is a Hebrew or Jewish understanding of the world functioning as it should. Peace is, is only part of that. It's, it's this, this idea of this cosmic symphony in harmony, working and moving exactly as it was created to do this. This idea of shalom and harmony is that, that humanity was in harmony with one another. We don't see war, we don't see division, we don't see hostility, that humanity was in harmony with creation, that the world was functioning as it should, and that humanity was also in harmony with God. That's this idea of shalom, that the world was moving and spinning in harmony and mutuality and peace, and the character of God was made known through this created order, that the world was going as it should. Well, in Genesis chapter two and three, we see this, this cosmic symphony so rudely interrupted. And all of a sudden, things are out of joint. And this idea of shalom, of right relatedness between humans um, and, and brother and sister and friend and foe, that, that, that it's disrupted. And this, this perfect harmony is disrupted between humanity and God, this right relationship. And this, this, this perfect harmony is disrupted between humanity and creation. And we see this reality roll out through the entire story of God. It's, it's a descriptive reality. It's what scholars call a descriptive reality. Right? Sometimes we read stories in the Old Testament and we think, why is this in the Bible? And that's where we've got to understand the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Sometimes it is just describing this out-of-joint reality of the world that we live in, and it's not prescribing how we ought to live. See the difference? And so what we see without the story of God is this, this out-of-joint, this disrupted shalom is now the backdrop of all of Scripture. And we even see this with now like extreme hierarchy coming into place and war and, and humans harming one another and murder because shalom is disrupted. And so then when we read through the first several chapters of Genesis, we wonder, what's God gonna do about this mess? Because things seem like they are falling apart. Well, in Genesis, very early on, God moves in with a plan. Sometimes, sometimes we skip over all of that. We think, well, God didn't have a plan until Jesus. But that's actually not true. God had a plan from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 11, God raises up a nomad by the name of Abram and says, go, I want you to go to a land that is unfamiliar to you. I want you to leave your family. And then God begins to expand a covenant that he made at the ark with Noah. And this is the covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Let's try that again. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Okay, what is the word you heard repeated throughout? 
blessed. Blessing. This word blessing is a sister word to shalom. That the people that God is now creating would experience that shalom that was experienced at the beginning. In other words, that in creating a people, through a people, through this what God is now calling a holy nation, through the descendants of Abraham, God would create a nation of a people who would experience the blessings of God because they would be in covenant with God and would also mediate the blessings of God amid a weary world. And we see God later fill this out even more when he takes Abram outside and he says, look up at the stars in the sky. Can you count them? And he says, that's how many your offspring will be. In other words, that's the amount of people someday in this world that will be mediating the blessings of God. And the idea of this, of God raising up a people, is that there would be a people in the ways that they live and in the ways that they are in right relationship with God, they would be showing the world what the holiness of God looks like. They would be showing the world what the heart of God looks like. They would be showing the world what the character and the goodness of God looks like, that when the world takes notice of the city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that they would be blessed and their hearts would be pricked and they would say, is that what your God is like? Because if so, I want to get to know that God. I want to get to know that God. And we see this story continue unfold uh, when eventually the people of God, they find themselves under the oppressive grips of Pharaoh. And we see this figure rise up by the name of Moses who stands before the Pharaoh and he says what? Let my people go. Let my people go. And he goes on and he charges out and he charges the people out of the grips of Pharaoh in Egypt and they find themselves in the wilderness and something profound happens in the wilderness. God is continuing to establish this vision of a blessed people that would show the world what blessing looks like. And now what he does as they're in the wilderness is he says, I am going to tell you how to live as my blessed people. And so in Exodus chapter 19, he brings Moses up to a mountainside, and it says this beginning at verse 3, verses 3 through 8. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called to him from the mountainside and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, pause. So what God is saying here, he's saying, I've saved you. I've extended my grace to you. You are saved. I carried you up on eagle's wings. I am fulfilling my promise of creating a people that will experience the blessings of God. I am fulfilling my promise of creating a people who will mediate the blessings of God and that the world will see what God is like. And now this is how you're going to do it. And so this is what he says. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, notice the word obey. Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, get this image in your head of a people who are showing the world what shalom looks like who are showing the world what blessings looks like, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession. And he says, 
these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses goes back to the elders of the people set before them, and all the people responded together, we'll do everything the Lord has said. And then they start worshiping a golden calf, but that's another story. (laughs) But essentially what God is doing here in the wilderness is God is continuing to firm up this idea of a covenant of creating a people that would display to a weary world what God is like, like, and that it would prick the hearts of people and that they would be drawn in. When I was 23 years old, I was a youth pastor in upstate New York, and at the time I was newly married and I wasn't sure if I wanted to have kids. I love being a mom now, but I didn't always have the greatest example of parents growing up. And so I was afraid to be a mom because I wasn't sure if I would be a good one. But one evening I was walking and I was out in rural New York, Finger Lake region of upstate New York, and it was a beautiful evening. The sun was setting. It was picturesque. And I walked by this home that looked like something that was straight from a Thomas Kincaid painting. Can you picture it? The back, the back that was backlit by the sun setting, nestled in the foothills, with the sky just hues of, of blues and oranges and purples and greens. And the house was just exuding a, a warmth from it, the lights. And the, there was a stone chimney with a, a, fi- a smoke billowing up into the sky. And I just felt and saw and heard warmth coming from the house. I could hear joy coming from the house because I, what I saw as I was walking by was a large family seated around a long table. And you could tell that they were so happy to be together. And I, I just wanted to get a closer look, so I went and I hid behind the bushes. And <laughs> You don't believe me, do you? I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And so what happens is I'm walking by, I see this family, and you could tell they're, they're breaking bread together, they're, they're, they're sharing food together. And I thought, these people like each other. And I thought, okay, if I'm gonna have a family one day, if that's, if that's what family can be like, I want a family like that. And what God is doing here since the beginning is setting up a family where others are in a world of dysfunction and pain and brokenness, and God is giving a picture of what shalom looks like so that others, when they peer in the windows of the people of God, and they see and they say, I'm not so sure what I think about religion, but if that's what that God is like, I want to be part of that. And this idea continues to expand into the New Testament. It's always been about God creating a radiant and holy people. In fact, we see this sense of cohesion of God creating a people when we arrive to the Gospel of Matthew. We see the first chapter of genealogies, which I know so many of you just flip right through, but it's an incredible uh, section of scripture. Because what it tells us is God is continuing this thread that began in the beginning, that God's plan of redemption is still moving as we see this genealogy that eventually leads to King Jesus, who Jesus then begins to show a way of living. And so what this does for us, by the way, is it shows that that we've arrived, that Jesus is the climax of the story. You see, N.T. Wright often says that too often we think of the Old Testament and New Testament as these separate stories that in the Old Testament, 
that there was just a broken down vehicle and God thought this vehicle is not working anymore. Everybody get out of the vehicle and we're gonna get into a new one. But that's actually not the case. What happens is, is you have a, a vehicle of a people and a covenant that is moving and it was always going, it always knew where it was going. It was always going to arrive somewhere. And at last when we reach the gospels, we see that it arrived to its destination. Who or what is the destination? The destination is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Prince of Peace and the Alpha and the Omega and the bright morning star. And what we see as this story of a people reaches the climax is there's this table. Imagine a dining room table that at that table is at first only ethnic Israel. Jesus comes in and he comes in with with grandma's uh, expanders during Thanksgiving and starts expanding the table and starts pulling up all these chairs and he says now seated at this table is this new covenant community of Jew and Gentile and Greek and female and male and at this table there is no more hierarchy. At this table is this vision of shalom. At this table is this vision of mutuality together as we are seated at one table and now all who are seated at this table under the reign and rule of King Jesus in the ways that they are living as God's kingdom people in the ways that they are being empowered by the Holy Spirit and in the ways that they are exercising their gifts under again the reign and rule of King Jesus who is ruling these people now we the bride of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit the church by the way and the stars in the sky we now are part of God's chosen plan of redemption, of displaying to a world that is hurting, of displaying to a world that is broken, of displaying to a world that is war-ridden, of explaining to a world that is full of hostility, of displaying to a world that is full of sickness and pain what the shalom of God looks like and the ways that we are moving into those spaces, that where there is division, we are bringing about healing, that where there is war, we are bringing about peace, that where there is hostility, we are bringing about reconciliation and the world looks and their hearts are pricked and they say I don't know what I think about religion but if that's what their Jesus is like then I want to be a part of that and then my friends what begins to happen is every knee bows and tongue confesses and a weary world rejoices at the display of Jesus in us and witness matters. When we get it right as God's kingdom people under the reign and rule of King Jesus and living this out, hearts are pricked, others are drawn in, and they want to be part of that story. So coming back to Acts chapter 5, it's hard to know all for sure what happened. But what I do believe is a lot was at stake. This was a fragile church, that this was a fledgling church. And God was working to protect the holiness and the witness of the church. In fact, in the next few verses, we see, and again, in, in stark contrast, what this looks like. The apostles performed many signs and wonders, we're at verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. 
As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. See the difference? Signs and wonders. Meeting together, people brought sick, people were healed, and then more was added to their number daily. Why was more added to their number daily? Because of the witness and the holiness of the church. Hearts were pricked. People took notice. Knees bowed and tongues confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want you to write this down. Two questions. First question. How is my heart? Second question. Do the people around me see the heart of God in me? Do the people around me see the heart of God in me? Twenty sixteen was a big year for Chicago. I lived in Pasadena, California, and I was really homesick at the time. See, what you need to know is 2016 was a special year because it was a year that the curse was broken for the Chicago Cubs. Amen. It was a big year. Now, what you also need to know is my last church in Pasadena banned me from giving sports analogies <laughs> because I'm no good at them. I once tried, I didn't remember what it was called when a basketball went in the hoop, so I was like, you know, it's a pointer. It's a pointer when it gets in the hoop. Um, but I'm gonna give you a sports analogy. We'll see how this goes. I am what I call a sports just yawner. Um, whenever sports come on, come on I, I want to take a nap. When I hear a football game being played, I'm like, oh good, it's nap time, because when I grew up, my dad would watch football and I would sleep. I've had zero interest in sports, and my husband, the engineer, also has zero interest in sports. So we're, we're trying to help our son like, find ways to watch games, but I, I'm like, I don't know this, what channel is it, I don't know. But in 2016, we were suddenly interested. And I'll never forget watching on November 16th, watching the Chicago Cubs win the World Series, 8-7 to seven against Cleveland. It was an exhilarating game, all the way up to the, just the last inning. And I remember watching afterwards, fans flood the streets of Wrigleyville. I mean, it was one of those just like goosebumps moments. I was watching grown burly men hug and kiss other grown burly men on the cheeks and cry like babies. And I was watching these people that were clearly strangers. They're just hugging each other, and they're just celebrating and rejoicing in the street up into early in the morning. And I wanted to be there. It was just amazing and stunning to watch these people who probably had pretty big political differences, had pretty different opinions on a lot of different things, but they were all coming around one thing. They all had joy around one thing. They were showing unity around one thing. They were celebrating around one thing. And I looked at that just picture of family and joy and I thought, let's go to the store and get me a Cubs hat. <laughs> let's go to the store and get me a Cubs jersey. Suddenly this girl who was not a sports fan at all was interested. Do you get it? 
we, the church, are invited to display family, to display unity, to display hope, that all the others who are maybe just not so sure what they think about church, which I don't know if you've paid attention to stats lately, but that number's growing. That number's growing. More becoming jaded and disillusioned by the church. I sometimes wonder how much of it has to do with our witness. But when the church gets it right, when we can display to a weary and hurting world that we have joy around one thing, that we can cross political lines, that we can join Christ in dividing the wall, in tearing down the dividing wall of hostility, when we can come together at one table and show the world what shalom looks like, that the world would be drawn in, that their hearts would be pricked, and they would say, I don't know what I think about this whole thing, but if that's what Jesus is like, I want to be part of that. My friends, that's our purpose. That's our purpose in this world. That is our mission. That is God's plan of redemption that we see beginning in the book of Genesis and unfolding even today. We, the church, are the stars in the sky. And may the world look upon us and may the weary world rejoice. Let us pray. God, we, how we thank you so much that we're chosen instruments to restore the cosmic symphony that was disrupted. We thank you for the ways that Jesus reveals to us the perfect image of shalom and holiness. And we thank you that you've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit that shapes and forms us and empowers us to live that out. God, I pray for Bridgeway, for Pastor Lance. I pray for continuous fresh outpourings of the Spirit, for signs and wonders. I pray for revival to break loose. I pray that droves of people would come to hear the hope-filled message of Jesus and that they would see that message alive in this church that they would see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus moving about in the character and in the hearts of all the people. God, I pray that this church would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.